It's nice to uh, spread out, have a little space this morning. We could get used to this. A little space. Years ago, uh, our family was taking a vacation a month long, and so we knew we were going to have a lot of time in the van. Kevin, let me know if I need to move. Otherwise, I'm going to stay parked. Um, so before we left, we went to the library and we checked out a bunch of books on tape. So we had something to listen to on the trip, month on the road. One of the stories we listened to was a series of stories. The title is The Incredulity of Father Brown. Have you guys ever heard of the Father Brown mysteries? Just very few. Okay. Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote these, and they were a series of mysteries. And his protagonist was this dumpy Jesuit. He was kind of like an early version of uh, Columbo. He, he didn't really look the role. He didn't look that smart. He didn't sound that intelligent. But, but he was an expert on human nature and the way people thought and, and the way they acted. And so in this series, the title of the series, The Incredulity of Father Brown, pointed out that he looked sort of stupid and simple, but he really wasn't. And a part of that meant that he was willing to suspend belief. Incredulity comes from credit to believe. So if something is incredible, it's unbelievable. And incredulity means that we're not sure. We're, we're suspending belief before we take something. And Father Brown would suspend belief. He practiced a kind of healthy incredulity related to the people he was interacting with and their alibis and their stories. And therein lay the story itself. Suspending belief until something could be verified. You guys know, uh, especially in a political race period, having a healthy dose of incredulity towards newspaper stories, political claims, he said, she said, whatever. You know, this is a good thing. It's a healthy thing, right? That we don't necessarily believe everything we hear. That we look for something to be verified. So when we're talking about other people and stories and claims, maybe when your child makes some excuse about why something isn't done, you might have a healthy sense of incredulity. I'm going to suspend belief until I see this thing verified. Towards people towards claims, that's often a good thing, incredulity. Incredulity, though, towards God is an entirely different matter. And towards a God who cannot lie, having a sense of incredulity is not a good thing. To believe what God says when he says it, how he says it, about the things he's speaking, <clears throat> this is an appropriate thing. And for lack of giving God credence, credit, Believing God and his word, the things he said, the things he speaks about, we suffer loss. So incredulity towards people, often a healthy thing, an appropriate thing. Incredulity towards God and his things, entirely different matter. And bringing this up, we'll be in Genesis 17, verses 15 through 21 this morning. <clears throat> if you are here, or at CPLS a week ago, we were in Genesis 17, you remember there, God came down and visited Abram, changed his name from Abram to Abraham, sort of enlarged on the promises he'd already made, that Abraham would become the father of nations, he'd possess the land, he, his descendants would be kings, etc. And then told Abraham, and this was our focus, that as a sign that you're in this covenant with me, you in your own body are going to bear a mark or a sign of this 
covenant I'm in with you through circumcision. That was the focus last week. We skipped over these verses that we'll look at this morning last week to focus on the covenant and the sign itself. This morning we'll pick up what we left out last time. Before we do, let me just quickly pray again to Lord, thanks that your word is true. Uh, Every bit, it's pure, your scripture says, of itself than pure gold or silver that's been refined seven times. Lord, you say in Hebrews, your word is active and alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, that it always accomplishes your purpose. And so we ask as we look in Genesis this morning and some other texts as well, that you would circumcise our hearts and our ears and our minds to understand the things you want to say to each one of us this morning, Lord, no more and no less in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, Genesis 17, uh, this is the conversation continuing between God to Abraham. So he's talked about the promises and circumcision. Here he says, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And by the way, when Abram's name is changed, the, the meaning changes. That's not true with Sarai's name to Sarah. It's actually the same meaning. It's princess. But God changes her name just like Abram. Again, it's a symbol or a mark that they're in a new relationship with God. God's the authority over Sarah just as Abraham. Of her, he says, I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be mother of nations Kings of peoples will come from her. That's the same promise to Abraham. Nations and kings from you, Abraham. Nations and kings from Sarah. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now, we miss this reading this in English, but the Hebrew there is Yitzhak. When Abraham, his response, he laughed, it's Yitzhak. And this will come up here in the next verses, you'll see. Um... Abraham laughed, he yitzhaked, and he said in his heart, he doesn't speak this out loud, but he said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And Abram, now speaks out loud, says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Ishmael, the son he already has. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Yitzhak. We would say Isaac. Same word, it means laughter. Abraham laughed. His son is going to be called laugh or laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes And I will make him a great nation, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. We're going to look at three points this morning. The first is sort of a mini Bible study, which is basically just to determine what are we to understand from this text? What does the text say specifically about Abraham and his response to God? So we'll do a little bit of a sort of a Bible study, then we'll look at a couple of points of application. First... What do you understand in verses 17 and 18 when it says Abram fell on his face and laughed and then he says, bless Ishmael? In your mind, when you read this or you hear that, does that sound like Abraham is full of faith and believing God 
Or does that sound like Abraham is practicing incredulity towards God and His Word by saying to himself, there's no way this can happen, and then saying to God, I don't know how we'd get a son, Sarah and I, but I've already got one. And so just in case that other thing you said didn't happen, would you please bless Ishmael so I'll know we're good to go? Does that, when I read this initially, that's sort of what I get from it. Abraham has this incredulity, a lack of belief, it sounds like, related to this promise God has just given him. Let me point out before I go on, in Genesis 15, 6, it was the promise of a son to Abraham that Abraham believed and God said, Abraham is righteous in my sight. Genesis 15, 6, one of the key verses in all the Bible, especially about justification by faith, comes up again in the New Testament as well. So Abraham has already believed God about a promise for a son. But here, when he hears quite a few years later that the promise is still good, but it's not Ishmael, it's through Sarah, who's now 90, Abraham laughs, says in his heart, how will this thing be? I'm 100, she's 90. Here's Ishmael, Lord, bless him. That's my initial take, maybe yours too. Now let me just tell you why I don't think that's what the text actually means, okay? And this is what I mean about Bible study. You know, it's an important thing when you're studying your Bible to let Scripture interpret Scripture. If there's a question about something in a text, as much as possible, we want to look at the text, what's said, sometimes what's not said, and then does Scripture, do other Scriptures come into play in understanding that text I'm looking at? Are there other parts of the Bible that talk about the same area? So we've got a little bit of all of that this morning. So, for instance, one of the first things I notice here. When Abram laughs and says in his own mind or heart, can a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman have a baby, bless Ishmael, I notice that God does not reprove Abraham. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't reprove him. And the reason that I say this, and I think it's significant, is this. In the next chapter, in chapter 18, God's going to come back to Abram and Sarah again. And he's going to say basically the same thing again. And Sarah, in her tent, is going to hear this. And just like Abraham, the text says, Sarah laughs to herself. This is like Abram's initial... He doesn't speak it. She doesn't speak it. She laughs to herself in incredulity that she is going to have this son. And in Genesis 18, God speaks to her through Abraham and rebukes her. Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too difficult for me, for Yahweh? So in Genesis 18, one chapter away, same thing said, sort of the same response, apparently, on the surface. God reproves or rebukes Sarah, but in this story, he does not reprove or rebuke Abraham. That's significant. You can go to the New Testament story in Luke 1 for a very similar scenario, not just on Abram's or Sarah's part, but on both. If you remember in Luke chapter 1, Luke is introducing both John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah, as well as Jesus himself. And so we get the stories about how these births started. So in Luke 1, Zacharias, a very old priest, is in the temple in Jerusalem offering incense when, lo and behold, shucks and jeepers, an angel from heaven appears before him. And he's initially speechless. And the angel says, hey, you know that boy you've wanted all these years? Well, God's going to give him to you. You and your ancient wife, Elizabeth. 
Now this sounds like good news, right? But Zacharias, he's not really buying it. So he says to the angel, how will I know this thing's going to happen that you're telling me about? This is too good to be true. We're too old. And the angel, Gabriel, says, buddy, I'm the guy that stands before God's throne. And because you have not believed what I said, God's messenger from his throne to you, because you've not believed, you're not going to be able to speak until the thing that's been promised has happened. So Luke 1, Zacharias asks a question in response. How will this thing be since I'm old? The angel hears the response and says, you haven't believed God's word and reproves him. God judges him. He can't speak. In Luke 1 again, though, six months later, same angel goes to the same country, a little bit up north in Nazareth in Galilee and goes to a little girl named Miriam in Greek, where we would call her name Mary, goes to this little gal. Now, just like Zacharias and Elizabeth, she can't have a child either, which she points out. The angel says, hey, you're going to have a son too. And he's going to be the Savior. Isn't this great? And she poses a question just like Zacharias did. She says, how will this thing be? Because I've, I've never had sex. I've never slept with a man. How could I have a child? That would be an impossible birth. Now, to Mary's response, there's no reproof. There's no rebuke. The angel simply answers the question and says, the power of God's going to come on you. So this child that you're going to carry, it won't have a human father. Its father is God, and this will happen by the Holy Spirit. But in Luke 1, you've got an old man and an old woman being told they're going to have a child, and there's reproof or rebuke to the question that's the response. In the case of Mary... There's no reproof at all, even though on the surface it looks like the same thing is happening. Apparently, the difference between the two really was one of believing God, even with a question, and not believing God. So Luke 1, very similar to Genesis 17. In Romans 4, and this is sort of the clincher for me. If you want to turn there, we'll be here in just for a few moments in these verses from verse 17 through verse 21. Romans 4 is the clincher for me. Uh, Paul writing to the Romans, you know, the apostle writing with the authority of Christ about salvation and salvation by faith is talking about Abraham in this context. And Paul writes specifically about Genesis 17 and these verses. So in Romans 4, Paul writes at verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. And You remember in context, God spoke as if it was already done when he addresses Abraham, which is the way you read it here. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Verse 18, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. This is in Genesis 17, not just Genesis 15. So that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So Paul can't be talking about Genesis 15. This has to be Genesis 17. This is, this is the same verse. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured 
that what God had promised he was able also to perform. So when I read Genesis 17 and I compare that to Romans 4, I can't say that Abraham's response is a response of unbelief because Paul says it wasn't. So even though as I read that story and sort of put myself in it, it sounds like Abraham's not buying it. But Paul says no, he was. Abraham was buying it. And last, Hebrews 11 verses 9 and 11, both Abraham and Sarah are cited as examples of faith. So verse 9, Hebrews 11, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise regarding Abraham. And then by faith, interesting, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Apparently, even in Sarah's case, perhaps an initial response of unbelief But later, Hebrews says, no, she did believe. So an initial sense of, how's this going to happen? And she's reproved. But later, obviously, a response of faith. So when I read this, this is sort of the two points I come down on. On one hand, that Abraham had some level of incredulity that God didn't consider unbelief seems clear because in the text, God says no to Abraham's request. No, it won't be Ishmael. There's some incredulity about how will Sarah and I, at our age, bring this about, bless Ishmael. God says to Abraham, no, that's not going to be the way it is. Sarah's going to be the one that has the son. Some level of incredulity, apparently not bordering or not amounting to unbelief. And apparently, like Mary's response in Luke 1 having more to do with how this thing would be brought to pass than if it would be brought to pass. And again, back to Genesis 15, Abraham had already believed God and been declared righteous on that faith that God would provide a son. So a little bit of a Bible study, some level of incredulity, apparently not rising to the level of what the Scripture would, be, would call unbelief. Um, incredulity towards people... Healthy dose is good. Incredulity towards God is not a good thing. A ready willingness to believe that what God has said is true is a good thing. And let me just give you a few quick verses in which God reproves people for not believing what they should have. And let me start in Luke 24 with his own. You remember after the crucifixion and sort of before anyone knew a resurrection had occurred... Two of Jesus' disciples, people that knew him and loved him, had followed him, set their hopes on him. They're disappointed and they don't know what to make of Jesus. And as they're walking on their way home to Emmaus from Jerusalem, they're talking to each other and a stranger approaches them and says, Hey, what what are you talking about today? And so they sort of pour their hearts out. This Jesus, we thought he was the one... But he was crucified and it's been three days and we're just not sure what to think. And of course the stranger is Jesus himself. They can't recognize him. They'll recognize him later, but they can't recognize him. And so Jesus says to them in response, remember these guys love the Lord, they'd followed him, they're his disciples. Jesus says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Foolish men, slow of heart to believe. 
Jesus reproves them. He rebukes them for unbelief. And he says, if you remember in Luke 24, he starts in the Old Testament and he reminds them of all these places in the prophets where the Messiah had been predicted, where God said he'll come and he'll suffer and he'll die and he'll rise. You could think of passages like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 16, Psalm 69, there's lots of others. But Jesus says, guys, you should have believed. You should have known. And you know, even apart from the Old Testament, if you remember, Jesus told his followers repeatedly, he would go to Jerusalem, he would be condemned, and he would be crucified, and he would rise again three days later. So he is speaking to his own, his followers, his fans, and he's rebuking them for not believing what they should have understood. That could be you and I about any one of a number of things. These aren't unbelievers. These aren't the enemy. These are folks in his camp. And he says, guys, you should have believed. You were slow to believe. You've been foolish because you didn't believe what was recorded for you to know and understand. So these are people, these are followers. Jesus reproves for unbelief. Acts 7 is an entirely different setting. Uh, one of the highlights, really, in the New Testament, uh, Stephen's defense to the religious Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, Stephen, the first martyr in the church. And if you remember, he's been brought before them. He's preaching in Jesus' name. He's performing miracles, and they bring him before, and they want to silence these guys. And as Stephen recounts the ways God had worked in the nation of Israel's history, he's bringing up the fact that God's men are always rejected. Moses was rejected, and the other, the prophets that God sent you, you rejected, and you killed. And so to the same group that had condemned Jesus and had him crucified, Stephen says in Acts 7.51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Remember, these are guys who wear in the robes of Moses' power. These are the religious authorities in Jerusalem and in Judea. They look like they're the guys who would know what's going on. And God says to them through Stephen, Nope, you claim to be Abraham's heirs through circumcision, but your hearts are uncircumcised. Your ears are uncircumcised. You're not those who are in that covenant with me. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. And when you read the gospel accounts, you realize time after time they had the opportunity to believe Jesus, both by what he said... And what he did, the attesting miracles. In fact, if you remember, John the Baptist has doubts. He's thrown in prison. He baptized his relative Jesus. He'd said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he's thrown in prison. And maybe like all of us, when it's dark and we're trying to comfort ourselves or realign our thoughts, is this really it? Is he really the one? Jesus says, go back and tell him what you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk. The poor have good news preached to them. That's Isaiah. That was the prophets telling about the Messiah who had come. This is what's going on, Jesus says. So Jesus' followers are reproved for unbelief. The enemy is reproved for unbelief. And last example, Acts 26, verse 8. When Paul's been arrested and he's making his defense before King Agrippa, who had both Jewish and Edomite lineage in his background through Herod, um, Paul says there, why is it considered incredible? Why is it considered unbelievable if God does raise the dead? 
Why would you consider this unbelievable? If you believe in the God of Israel, he's a God who's worked miracles. And by the way, the dead have been raised in the past. Different kind of resurrection. Because they died again, of course. But why do you think it unbelievable, King Agrippa, that God would raise the dead? This should not be unbelievable to you. We want to, when we're in the scriptures and when we're considering who God is and what he's done and what he said to us, we want to come loaded, predisposed, inclined to believe what he says, even if it seems hard for us to believe. And let me say this, especially in the arenas of your life in which God has said something that is difficult for you to believe or sort of put in a frame of reference that makes sense to you. Um, typically, it's not the things that we're not struggling with that matter in our response. It, it's those points of pain or frustration in our life. Those are the places where what God has said to be true, we must latch on to most vigorously. We must say to ourselves, I believe. Or we must say with the guy who comes to Jesus, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. So if, if I say to you today, do you believe God's word? Most of us would say, well, of course I do. But the truth is, for all of us, there's probably areas in our life where we don't. There's areas of pain or frustration or confusion or loss in our life. And in those areas, we might say to God, you're ripping me off. If God's ripping us off, his word isn't true because he says he's good all the time. And that if he hasn't withheld his son Christ from us, that he'll not withhold any good thing from us. Do you see how this plays out? It's in those points of your need or your confusion or your frustration that this really matters. And remember in Genesis 17, Abraham really wants that son. He really wants that lineage that he will be a link in the chain and the blessing will continue. And he's a hundred and God's saying, no, it's not Ishmael. It's a son you haven't had yet with this 90-year-old wife. It's at a point of pain and frustration and need that God's speaking to him in. And in your life and mine, it's in those areas where we need to rise to the challenge to believe what God has said is true, either about his goodness or his provision. It could be a hundred and one things. Also related to this, we, we know that Abraham's already characterized by faith. He's already believed he's saved because he believed God, this wild promise about kids, about a son. But you remember the other thing in Genesis 17 here, the thing that we pointed out last week, when God said, Abraham... Do this painful thing, circumcise yourself, and do that same sort of humbling act to all the men in your household. And you remember what Abram's response was? He obeyed immediately and fully. We often, I'm convinced, are hamstrung in our ability to believe God in certain areas, especially because we are not characterized by obedience. When I obey God, I see God's faithfulness. And it predisposes me to believe Him when there's something that I don't understand. Something I don't get. Something that's a doubt in my life. It's easier for me to treat God's Word lightly if I don't obey it. If the disposition of my life is not to obey the things I know I'm supposed to do from the Scriptures, I treat the Scriptures lightly. And when I need to know something is true, my heart, by my actions and by my choices, is less inclined to believe that thing I need most 
because I haven't lived a life of obedience. I'm not predisposed to believe God and His Word if I'm not acting on what I already know to be true. This gets back to James 2. And actually, 1 John also. James says, don't tell me about your faith, show me. Show me your faith by your actions. And he references Abraham. 1 John says, don't say you love, even though he's not, he's not really saying don't tell others you love them, but let your love be in deed and in truth. So when we're thinking about do we believe the Scriptures, it's easy to say yes, we do. Where it matters most, though, is in those areas of life where you're struggling, you're confused, you face loss, and you're not sure that God really loves you or that He's good or that His promises are true. That's where it matters. And if we bring a life that's characterized by obedience, we are predisposed to believe. We've seen God's faithfulness in the past. And I'm convinced for a lot of us, it's a lack of a commitment to obedience that hamstrings our our ability to believe God in those tough, frustrating areas of life. The last point I want to make this morning is uh, incredulity's children. You guys have a nice blue study sheet there this morning. And so hopefully that's made what we've talked about a little easier to keep track of. Uh, People have been after me for a long time to do something that's more helpful. So here it is, Larry, for Larry and others. I know this is a good idea. I lost a lot of you last week. I was covering so much ground. And I thought I really should have had an outline for him last week. So you've got that this morning. But the top of your study sheet, incredulity's children. Incredulity's children. That is... The children that are born from unbelief. That's the third point here. Verse 18, in Genesis 17, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. (laughs) Remember, Ishmael's here. I can see him. I can get my hands on him, Lord. Bless Ishmael. Make Ishmael the son of promise. Now, oftentimes in our life, again, most especially in these areas, we really have some felt need we might think that God's going to provide something for us. But that confidence may waver over time if it takes a while for that thing to happen. And so our mindset sort of recedes further and further away from God doing some really good thing for us, some really great thing, to, Lord, I'll take what I can get. I'll take what I can get. I'm not holding out anymore. Uh, Better is the bird in the hand than two in the bush or something. So I thought you'd promise me these things, but man, the years have gone by and they're not here. And so here's an Ishmael. Bless this instead. And you know, God's just not having it. That's the thing. We are quick to say bless Ishmael with Abraham because we don't get what God's going to do. And we think it's been long enough. It's been too long. God hasn't come through. So God bless my Ishmael, whatever that might be. Bless Ishmael. This applies in all kinds of areas of life, um, which I think I'll cover here in just a second. uh, Bless this thing that I can see, that I can get my hands on. It's not what I thought you were going to do. It's not what I thought you promised me, but it's what's available, so bless Ishmael. Now, just using Ishmael as our example here, and Abraham's prayer to God, bless Ishmael, God honors the prayer. And he does bless Ishmael, and he says, okay, Ishmael will become a nation. And I think it's in Genesis 26. You'll learn the 12 names of the sons of Ishmael. Just like we're going to have 12 patriarchs from Jacob, there's 12 patriarchs from Ishmael. And the next time you read about 
Ishmael or his descendants in Genesis 37, it's the descendants of Ishmael that are buying and selling Abraham's great-grandson Joseph as a slave. Buying him from his brothers, selling him as a slave in Egypt. Joseph's relatives, the Ishmaelites, are selling him as a slave. You go on into Nehemiah 6, when Nehemiah returns from the Babylonian captivity to rebuild the walls and the city of Jerusalem, it's the descendants of Ishmael that oppose him. If you go to 1 Chronicles 5, when Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are coming into the land of promise after the exodus out of Egypt, it's the descendants of Ishmael that are opposing their possession of the land promised them. And the clincher, Galatians 4 in the New Testament, when God wants to name and illustrate the enemies of his children, he talks about Ishmael. So in Galatians 4, Paul says, You brothers, you're like Isaac. You're the children of promise. You who have faith in Jesus. You're like Isaac, children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. He who was born according to the flesh, that was Ishmael. That's what Abraham and Sarah and Hagar could work out, produce among themselves, was Ishmael. But Paul looks back to this person and this prayer, if you will, and says Ishmael's the picture of those who oppose the children of promise to this day. And by the way, the Arab Muslims claim Ishmael as their ancestor. And there's some question about this, whether the lineage works out or not. But if they are, 4,000 years after this prayer to bless Ishmael, Ishmael's descendants would be the greatest enemy and oppressors of the spiritual descendants of Abraham on the earth today, Christians in the church today. Abraham, in this level of incredulity that he does have, says, bless Ishmael. And guys, this is what you get. You get oppression and you get conflict when we seize and lay hold of the Ishmael's we want God to bless in our life. We don't get the promise and the laughter. We get conflict. Be careful and beware of incredulities, children. Under applications, just a few quick points. Uh, following up on beware of incredulities, children, let me just mention a couple things. You know, as a church, we're, I'm thrilled to be here this morning with this much space. And it's a little sticky, like CPLS has been the last couple of weeks. Hopefully the air conditioning is fixed there this week for next Sunday. But if you guys think of how we pile in to CPLS every week, it's crowded. And we have talked, and our building team has done a great job of looking for all kinds of options for Lion and Lamb to meet in as a church. You know, the next place. And I confess, it seems up to this point, we've put a bid in on a building, we've looked at rents, leases, building, uh, and the door's been closed. We've talked about uh, common sense kinds of loans, what are we willing to do, what are we not willing to do, etc. And you know, God just has not <laughs> opened the door yet. And you know, there's a temptation to just say, we're going to make something happen. We're going to do something. We're going to get us a place, you know, we're going to. 
whatever. And I'm thinking, just in, in thinking about this message this morning, I'm thinking in my life, I've got to say to myself, Lord, we don't want an Ishmael. We don't want to settle for something that's not your best. We want to be patient. We want to bless what you're blessing and not rush headlong into something that's not what you want to provide. So seriously, I would ask you to pray again with us just that God would show us what his blessing is in that next step for lion and lamb, just as a home, just as a place to meet. But you know, if you've been unmarried longer than you thought you would be, or if as a couple you've had years that you thought you'd have kids and you don't have kids, or if you've been stuck in a job longer than you thought God, a good and loving God, would leave you stuck, or if you find yourself unemployed and you're wondering, Lord, where's the beef you promised to provide for me? In all these arenas, we want to remember, beware of incredulity's children. Don't act in unbelief. It's in those places, most especially, that we've got to say, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how you're going to do this thing, but I trust you for my future spouse. Or Lord, I trust you for the children you do or don't give us. Or Lord, I trust you to give me what I need to get through another day at a job I'd rather not be at. Or Lord, I'm trusting you for whatever it is we need and I'm unemployed. It could be a hundred other things. Be careful about making decisions based on unbelief or incredulity towards God and His promises. The flip side of that would be quick to believe God. You know, it strikes me. The elements for the Lord's Supper are right in front of us. Think through this for just a second. Christians are those, by definition, who have believed an unbelievable claim, really. Right? That this guy, this, this no-name Jew, in the Mediterranean world was God on earth and died for the sins of the world and rose from the dead. You know, Paul says this, this sounds to all the world like a very foolish message. And if you're a Christian, you've believed an incredible claim about Jesus. You already have. In other words, if we have already believed a story that sounds incredulous, incredible, unbelievable... Why wouldn't we just run with that and say, having already believed this incredible story, we're going to live a life characterized by that same kind of faith in things that I would argue are less incredible. That if God raised Jesus from the dead, He can take care of me. He can take care of you. He can do the things in life that we're not sure about. If we've actually trusted, believed God's story about Jesus and our deliverance, what is so hard? about believing Him for our job or our spouse or our children. It would be consistent. It would be consistent. And the life of a Christian is supposed to be marked by faith, by believing the incredible things an incredible God says are true. So as Christians, we have started a life based on be believing an unbelievable story that Bill's going to lead us in the remembrance of here later, related to who Jesus was and what he did for us. So for us to believe the other parts of God's word in those areas of our need, this would just be consistent. This would just be consistent 
Christians of all people should be predisposed to believe a God who can't lie and who's already demonstrated his love for us in Christ. And the last thing, and very briefly on my hobby horse again, guys, if you don't read your Bible, you don't know what to believe. If you don't read your Bible, you don't know what God has said. And so when you're pushed and shoved and when you feel the pinches of life in some area, you don't know what to believe. You're left with Ishmael's because you've got nothing else. If you don't know what promises God has made to us, you can't believe them. You have no, no consolation, no source of personal encouragement in your quiet moments when no one else is around to tell you what the Bible says and when you can't go online to listen to Ravi Z or somebody else. If you don't read the Bible, you don't know what's true. You don't know what to believe. I'm floored again. Guys, we have the wealth of the world in our Bibles, and most of us are not diligent to be in them regularly. If we're not reading God's Word, we don't know what's true, and we don't know what God wants us to know when we come to these crises points in our life. So read your Bible, and obey what you know God's telling you to do, And you'll find that it's easier to believe God in these areas of pain and hurt and frustration. Let me close with this quote from Chesterton. Thinking of the incredulity of Father Brown, Chesterton said in his book, The Everlasting Man, they still live in the shadow of the faith, but they've lost the light of the faith. They live in the shadow of faith but they've lost the reality or the substance or the light itself. We want to live in the reality. We want to believe God's incredible word because he can't lie. And because his willingness to make his word good is displayed in the very elements before us this morning in the Lord's Supper. God who promised his son sent him. He did what he said he'd do. He died for the sins of the world. He rose from the dead on our behalf. And he says, believe in me and walk out that life we have on the earth in faith towards him, a God who can't lie. Father, help us walk with our spiritual mentor and father Abraham, this one who was quick to believe what you said. And Lord, when we suffer incredulity, I pray it's as brief and as minimal as Abraham's was apparently in this text this morning, that Paul says he actually grew strong in faith. And even Sarah, Lord, initially Doubting, Hebrew says, no, she grew strong in faith too. So Lord, at least with the Father in the Gospels who comes to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. We say that to you this morning and ask, Lord, that you would circumcise our hearts and our ears, that your word would go in and find fertile soil. Lord, that we would believe and act on what you've said is true. In Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.